Um, all right, this morning Laura is going to begin a new series, a new preaching series um, called Jesus is King from the Gospel of Matthew, the, the, the book, the um, biography of Jesus' life that his follower Matthew wrote. Um, and as we seek this year to relentlessly pursue Jesus, as that's a focus area for us, we want to immerse ourselves um, for the next six weeks in Jesus' life, in his teaching, in his miracles, in the things that he did. And this will lead us right up to the Easter weekend, we'll we'll be preaching about and reading um, the things from Jesus' death and resurrection as we are in the Easter weekend. But as you'll see from the seats around you, not just a preaching series, also a reading series. Um, And so from these printed ones here or the info desk, or you can get it uh, a digital version online, um, we would love to invite you to read through Matthew together as we lead up to Easter. And so this is just a simple reading plan this time around. No no journaling required, no big books, just this, which will invite you to read normally just one chapter of Matthew each day of uh, a weekday, Monday to Friday. Um, and then as we get into Passion Week or Holy Week or the week before Easter, we'll slow down, read a bit more and kind of t- take more time with those events of Jesus' final week. But then, if you're reading or listening to the Bible each day and you go, oh, that, that's easy, I got that done, or that's great, I'm enjoying that, and you want to do more, on the other side there are reading plus options, uh, like journaling or some other interesting things there. So I um, just want to invite you to join with us in that. Tomorrow is the start, Matthew chapter 1. Um, and so each week, um, normally, apart from once when we have a, a special guest speaker in a few weeks' time, the message will be about the something from the chapters that you're about to read that coming week, which is what Laura's going to do this morning. Thanks. So some of you may or may know, not know that I have a very weak spot for chocolate, and I feel like I use chocolate a lot as an illustration in church, but I'm going to again today because you may or may not have guessed it's very important in my life. So at night time after dinner, the kids are allowed on screens, they're allowed to watch TV or YouTube or play a game. And they're very occupied. They often have earbuds in or headphones on. So it's my goal when they're occupied to sneak into the kitchen and get chocolate without them finding or spotting me. Now, this is a challenge I like and a challenge I'm up for. It's high risk because our kitchen and dining room where the kids are, it's open plan. They can spot me if they really want. The challenge is on. Nine times out of ten, I nail it. I get the chocolate, I sneak out, I'm in and out quickly, nobody suspects a thing. There's been even occasions when a kid has walked up to me, I've just got the chocolate in my hand, whip it behind my back and pretend like I'm just up to absolutely nothing, walk into the bedroom later, very good at it. But just last week I got caught. So I remembered there was a block of mint chocolate in our fridge door, so our fridge is one of the reverse ones, the fridge is up high. In the top shelf of our fridge door, mint chocolate, my favourite. I had seen it, but it had been buried under quite a few things wrapped in plastic. I'm like, I can get it. So I got into the kitchen. I was up on my tippy toes for optimal reach. Put my hand down underneath the few things it was on, like buried underneath. Had it in my hand, but as I pulled it up, the chocolate wrappers of everything around it rustled. And Zara went, what are you doing? I was there with the hand in my fridge. She knew exactly what I was doing. I was totally sprung. What do I do? Do I deny it when I've got it in my hand? 
do I just tell the kids, I'm sorry, you just aren't getting chocolate tonight, which is really cool because they know exactly what we're eating, or do I share it? This is the dilemma, but the lure of chocolate is strong, the challenge is on, and I'm up for it. That particular night, I did end up sharing because I did feel a little bit bad. But it takes a lot of kind of self-will to deny the temptation of chocolate. And chocolate is fairly harmless when it's eaten in moderation. But there are a lot of things in our life that tempt us, that can be harmful to us, to the people around us, and even to our relationship with Jesus. So how do we avoid those kinds of temptations when the lure is really strong? So temptation. If you didn't already pick it up, that's what we're talking about today. So chocolate's a really fun example, but there are much bigger things that try and grab our attention. So like Jeff said, we're starting a series in Matthew in the lead up to Easter because Jesus asked us to follow him. So how do we follow him when we don't know what he did and how he lived and what he said? So this week in your reading plan, you're going to look at the first five chapters of Matthew. And today I want to talk from Matthew chapter 3 and 4. So at the end of Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus has come to John the Baptist to be baptized. And we see God's declaration over Jesus. It says, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Imagine being there, this miraculous event. Heavens open up and you hear God's voice. This is my dearly beloved Son. This was God's declaration of who Jesus was. So the Jews, to whom Matthew was writing this book, were waiting and anticipating Jesus. And Matthew not only is recording this event because it's amazing to to observe, but he's recording this event to show the Jews who he was writing to, this is the one you're waiting for, and I'm about to tell you all about him in the rest of this book. And we don't need to keep waiting. We don't need to keep hoping. Jesus is the Son of God. So God declared it. And now he's about to show us that not only is he the Son of God, but he's also suitable for the ministry of being the Messiah. He's worthy of that title. And he's about to show us why. So right after Jesus' baptism, it says, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. So after the high of Jesus' baptism, after the high of that declaration from God, the Holy Spirit deliberately led Jesus into a situation where he was confronted by Satan, or the accuser, the slanderer, the devil, the tempter. There are a lot of names for him. But the word tempted in this verse actually has two meanings. So the first meaning of being tempted is to try and get someone to sin. So I think we kind of all know that being tempted is to lead you down the wrong path. But there's also another meaning. The second meaning is to test or prove something as valid. So the devil was tempting for one reason, but God was making use of this devil's work for a much greater purpose. The devil was trying to get Jesus to sin, 
But God was using this time to prove that Jesus was the real deal, that Jesus is our Messiah and he is worthy. So out of all of the places to lead someone, the desert is such a harsh place, a desolate, lonely place. In just, It would have been terrible to be there, out by yourself, lonely, cold at night, hot in the day. But if you're going to make a situation even harder, add fasting to it. 40 days and 40 nights. You're at the point of starvation. This is absolute weakness. Jesus would have been just drained physically, emotionally, probably mentally in a desert place with no food in your body. Matthew just seems to kind of state that so casually. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted and became very hungry. And I think we can just kind of breeze over it and just run through that and not realize if you've ever fasted, this is a big deal. This is not just a little casual, I feel a little bit hungry, I should have a snack. This is a deep hunger right in the depths of your soul where you are on the brink of your body shutting down. Starvation, weak, hungry. This is an understatement that Jesus was hungry. So why does he do this? And what is the point of this? And why did all of this happen in a desert place? So the wilderness or a desert place is not a foreign concept in the Bible. All through the Old Testament, we see people of the Old Testament finding themselves in desert-type places, in wilderness-type places. And these places represent a time of preparation where God was leading people to prepare them for what was next. And in these places, these people had to rely on God for everything, for all of their needs, for their very survival. So, for example, 40 days and 40 nights, Noah and his family were on the boat during the flood. 40 days and 40 nights, Moses fasted on Mount Sinai when he received the old the covenant, the law of God. 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah was in the desert before he received his new commission from God. 40 years, the Israelites wandered in the desert before they were ready to enter into the promised land. And 40 days is a season of Lent, which is right now, which all around the world, Christians are preparing to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. And each of these 40 days, 40 years, this theme of 40, it was a time of preparation. What's coming next? God is preparing for what's next. Now, in our Christian walk, we are going to face times where it feels like a desert. We're probably not going to physically be in a desert, but it will feel like a wilderness place. And it's usually not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Our tendency when we're in those places is to do whatever we can to bolt out of it, to get out of this harsh place because it's hard, it's difficult, you're probably weak, you're emotional. This is not a nice place. But what if in those times we realize, hey, this, is, this might be a wilderness place. What is God doing in me? What is God preparing for me next? What do you want me to learn, God? Now, the desert was using this time to tempt Jesus to sin. Now, that's really worth running away from. But God was using this time to show that Jesus is valid. God was getting Jesus ready for the ministry that was to come. So Matthew 4, 3 says, During that time the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Interesting statement. Because when you actually look closely at those words, the, the devil isn't questioning the sonship of Jesus. 
He actually, he knows he is the son of God. He's asking Jesus to prove it and demonstrate it through miracles. He's asking him to prove it in what seems like actually a really harmless way. And that's what temptation is like. Temptation is less about doing an action that is characterized as wrong and more about satisfying a normal desire in us in a sinful way. So does that make sense? Temptation in general in your life and here with Jesus, it isn't often about being tempted to do something wrong. It's about being tempted to do something which may seem normal, but you're tempted to do it in a sinful way. Because for Jesus, eating wasn't a sin. And eating in this situation would have given Jesus strength. It would have actually been helpful for his body right then. But it's taking a normal desire, a normal thing to satisfy us in a sinful way. It's about the motivation. So Jesus in this situation was being tempted to take his eyes off God. Because he knew that being in the desert was preparing him. So if he took his eyes off God and turned those stoves into bread, he was being self-reliant. He was taking his eyes off the purpose that God had for him. If you're the son of God, turn him into bread. It's going to be okay. When you look up commentators, they say this is called, this temptation is called lust of the body. Hedonism, self-reliance, pursuit of pleasure, getting what you want in an unhealthy way. Now for us, the whispers might come something more like this. Will God really look after you? You can do that. God's forgiven you. It's okay. It's harmless. It could be eating something. That's okay. It's not sinful. You can take your things into your own hands and fix the problem. We take our eyes off God and we become self-reliant. Now, I am tempted to do that all the time because sometimes, or maybe not even sometimes, a lot of the time God seems to be slow in bringing about his promises in my life. And I want it now. I don't want to wait. So I take things into my own hands. If I just have this thing in my life, it's going to solve all of these problems. It's going to bring me pleasure. This thing has my attention. I don't want to wait. What about if I go shopping and I just buy things? It's going to take my mind off that relationship problem. I don't have to think about it. I don't want to have to do the hard work of working this issue out with the help of God and with that person. If I watch this dodgy program... It might bring me pleasure for a bit. I want to do it, but is it actually helpful? Or am I in a shame, a cycle of shame and guilt? Am I being self-reliant and just taking my mind off the things God wants me to do and cutting corners? Or what about the self-reliance of things like, if I just use this money set aside that I have as an offering for God, I'm going to have more money to buy the things I want and need during the week. That sounds like a really true option. If you do that, you will actually have more money. But are you taking your eyes off God? Are you taking your eyes off what God is asking you to do? So often we think we can fix our problems by and being self-reliant is the answer. We take shortcuts. We pursue pleasure. We numb the pain through self-reliance. And we try and tough it out in those difficult circumstances. Because as humans, we know we don't like uncomfortable things. We'll do whatever it takes to make the situation better. But is it actually what God wants? Do we take this thing that 
we're working with God on and do we turn our eyes and rely on ourselves? And does it really satisfy if we do that? Or do we end up in that cycle of guilt and shame that goes round and round as we pursue pleasure, as we become self-reliant? So what does Jesus say to the devil? Because if Jesus had have given in to the devil in this very first temptation, it would have been all over Red Rover for Jesus the Messiah. He says in Matthew 4, But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus resisted the temptation. He didn't sin. He kept his eyes focused on what God was wanting him to do, his promises. He kept his eye on the the purpose of being in the desert, and he kept his mind focused on God. And that's the same for us. We come back to the promises that God has given us, that he is for us, he is not against us, and that he will provide our needs. Matthew later was teaching, he says in Matthew 7, 9, you parents, if you ask for a loaf of bread, sorry, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do not give them a... I can't read that verse, let me start again. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Jesus was saying, God is going to give you good things, the things you need. He's showing us that God is a good father. He will satisfy those normal desires in us because he put them there. He created them. He wants to fill them. Remember his promises. And when we do that, there will be no guilt and shame. We are not in that cycle because those normal things that God puts in us are satisfied by him. Now, the devil tried to change the order. He said, food first, then God. But Jesus said, no, it's God first and then food. But as we know, the devil was just getting started. This was not the end. Matthew 4, verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold up their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now, I always thought this temptation was about not testing God, about not purposely putting yourself in a position where God had to protect you. But this temptation is actually about pride. Commentators call it pride of life or egoism. So another way of putting this is boasting about self, bringing attention to self, being arrogant, being prideful. It's about wanting to win, wanting uh, to do things for the sake of self-glory. It's, in other words, all about me. So let me explain a little bit. So the temple was the central point in the city of Jerusalem. It was the most significant building and the most public building. So this is the highest point of the temple that he had been taken to. And it could be seen from probably the most vantage points around Jerusalem. And it's also the busiest place in Jerusalem. So meaning that if Jesus jumped off that day and angels saved him, the maximum amount of people in the city would have seen that event. No one could survive a fall like that. People would have seen angels protect Jesus, and they would have gone, that is a miracle. It would have been instant fame for Jesus, instant power, because imagine the news rippling through Jerusalem, the maximum amount of people, did you see Jesus? Did you see what happened? The angel saved him. This is a man we need to listen to. Instant fame instant recognition. 
Jesus could say, I am the Messiah. Look at what I did. You need to listen to me. But if Jesus followed through, he would have taken his eyes off Jesus. It would have been all about himself, not about God's plans and purposes for his life. This, it was appealing to him saying, you can skip the suffering that's coming because people will know and believe in you. You don't have to go through that hard stuff. The devil's appealing to Jesus' pride to put himself first. You don't need to do that. It's easy. Take the shortcut. Skip the painful part. Now, this is not dissimilar to what we face. Pride is such a big issue for humanity, for us, for me. We all want purpose. We all want to make a difference. We all want to be recognized for something. If I post this video, it's a little dodgy, it's a little edgy, it's a little risque, but people are going to like me more. If I get this promotion at work, if I cut these corners, nobody's going to find out, but I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to have responsibility. I will have power. But where is God in this picture? Our character is in question. What are we doing out of pride? Now, the devil here in this passage actually quotes the Bible to Jesus. He's quoting directly from Psalm 91. He doesn't even change the words. It's exactly the same if you look it up. So surely if this is out of the Bible, it's going to be good, right? Jesus, if you do this, God will save you. It says it right here in Psalm. You'll be known. For us, it might look like that too. God has forgiven you. You can do this. It's all okay. But the problem with this passage and the problem with what the devil is quoting to Jesus, it's out of context. It's 99% truth with like a 1% twist of a lie. And Jesus responds and he says, The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. God wants us to trust him, not to dare him. Because God will save us. We are forgiven. That is a fact. But Jesus doesn't want us to deliberately sin and test God in that way. The enemy wants to undermine our trust and our faithfulness in Jesus. He wants to undermine it, and so we settle for what is second best. Not God's best, but second best. Because, And it's tempting, because the devil's second best often looks shiny and glorious right here and right now, but it's not actually helpful for us. So you can ask yourself the question... Is this something I am tempted to do for my pride? Is God in this picture? Am I relying on God? Am I keeping my eyes on him? Is this going to cause me to sin? So let's look at the last temptation that Jesus faced in Matthew's account because these first two temptations actually set it up for this last one. Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it to you all, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. So commentators call this the temptation of lust of the eyes, materialism, power. So another way of putting this is wanting to possess all that we see. Things like money, recognition, possessions. It's kind of the first two temptations plus more. Have all the power and all of the authority of all the kingdoms on earth, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me. Everything is yours, Jesus. 
but it's like the fine print of a contract or even like the plot of a Disney movie. There's always the clause. The evil guy's like, you do this, but you have to actually worship me. It's like a whisper, kind of a background thing. You can have it all, but just worship me. Now, the devil isn't stupid. He knows that Jesus is going to have ultimate power and authority. He knows that he owns it all. But right now in Jesus, when Jesus was walking the earth, Jesus had limited power and authority. Now, the devil has also very limited power and authority here on earth right now. But what he has, he was willing to hand over to Jesus because he knew if he, Jesus took it from him, it was just the limited power now. He was taking his eyes off God's purpose. He was taking his eyes off him and wanting power and possession right now, and it wasn't God's plan and purpose. It's a combination of self-reliance, pride, and materialism. You can have what you came for. You can have power and authority, but it's counterfeit. Anything the devil offers us is counterfeit. It's not the real deal. This power that the devil was offering was for here and now momentarily. It's not everlasting like God already has. Now remember, Jesus is in this state where he's starving. He's just already fought off the devil for those last two temptations. Imagine how tempting this would be. If I give in, I have it all and I don't have to die on the cross. I'm tired. I just want to go home. This would be really hard instant gratification instant power that's quite luring now we're not any different we face this temptation as well we can get power and authority here on earth but what is it going to cost is it just power and authority here and now or is it going to be lasting into eternity what is your driving force for wanting that If you're tempted right now to get more stuff, more things, more possessions, more power, if you want to be an influencer, if you want to be a leader, that's great, but what is your motivation behind it? Is God in the picture? Are you taking your eyes off Jesus, or is this the path Jesus is leading you down? Because Jesus has promised the things that we have and will have in the future, in eternity, far exceed what we have here now. And what the devil is offering seems shiny and good, but it's actually counterfeit. And it's going to be harmful to us in the long run. So what does Jesus do? He says in verse 10, Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. This is interesting. The very last temptation, this is the only time that Jesus told the devil to get away because he knew it was complete. He knew it was finished. He knew that throughout this whole time, he had proven that he is worthy of being called Messiah. He had kept his eyes on God. He had kept his eyes on his purpose for being in the desert. He had kept his eyes on the purpose for him being here on earth right now. And he knew that it was finished. So he says, get out of here. Now, our ultimate purpose is to love God and love people. And the devil's going to try and do whatever he can to take our eyes off that purpose. But we have a God who is going to walk this journey with us. The temptations we, we face will try and get us to walk away from that purpose, try and get us to be self-reliant, take our eyes off God, to worship other things apart from God, and to lure us into self-reliance, pride, materialism. I think all these three temptations that Jesus faced represent kind of all of the things we face here on earth. 
Jesus faced them and overcame because he abided in Jesus. And we've talked about that over the last two weeks. So go back and listen to those messages if you need to. Abiding in Jesus, keeping your eyes on him. We have a saviour who knows and understands us. I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 4. It says in verse 15, the high priest who's talking about Jesus of ours understands our weakness for he faced all of the same testing we do and yet he did not sin. How comforting is that? Jesus absolutely understands where you're at and what you're facing. We live in a broken world where temptations will come. That is a guarantee. And I also love this of what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians when he says in verse, sorry, chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overcome you, has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God always gives us a way out when we are facing those difficult things, when we are tempted. But it is a choice. We have a choice to go down temptation path or we have a choice to follow God's way. It's a choice. And the enemy, like I said before, wants to undermine your faithfulness and your goodness to God. He wants you to settle for second best. And it's going to seem luring. It's going to seem shiny and good. But is it actually what God wants for your life? Now, there are times when you will make the wrong choice because we all sin. We all fall short. We are not Jesus. And that's where God's grace comes in. He loves us so much that he wants to draw us back. Jesus' ultimate purpose was to come and die on the cross for us. We know that. And in that purpose and in him fulfilling that, we are forgiven. So we can come back to him freely and guilt-free and shame-free because Jesus forgives us in those times when we make mistakes. So I want to spend some time right now just committing to Jesus and praying And just thinking about things in our life that we might be tempted with and just asking God, God, show me the way out. Give me the strength to follow that path. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you have shown us that you are the Son of God and that you are worthy of that job of being Messiah. That in that preparation for the ministry to come, that you overcame, that you did not sin and that you show us a way out. I pray that as we are, if we are struggling, that we will keep our eyes on you, that we will keep our focus on your purpose and your plan to love you and love people around us, that we will keep our eyes on your promises that you are a good, good God, that you will provide, that you have our best at heart. Jesus, I just pray that in those moments when we are feeling tempted, that your way will be so, uh, that we will just be able to choose that in your strength that you will guide us and lead us. Lord, if we're struggling this morning under the weight of, of maybe wrong choices, of going down that path of temptation, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Lord, I come back to you. I want to abide in you and remain in you afresh. I want to keep my eyes on you again and remember your purpose in my life. Jesus, thank you that you overcame and through your strength we can overcome too. Holy Spirit, speak to us in your name. Amen.